So tonight in our study, we're going to see how Jesus is a better sanctuary than the one uh, given by God to the Israelites as they began their journey to the promised land. Now, the original sanctuary or tabernacle was never meant to be a permanent dwelling place because no place can contain God. And it wasn't meant to be a permanent place of worship. It was just a shadow. And Donna told us last week uh, very well that a shadow is an imperfect representation of something. It's a lifeless outline of a real thing. So the tabernacle of the Old Testament was just a shadow of the true sanctuary that was going to come, Jesus Christ. And it was also patterned after the tabernacle, which is in heaven. Hebrews 9.24 tells us that the earthly tabernacle was a copy of the true one that is in heaven. And the study of Hebrews often makes me think of... um, Two men on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, this particular study that we're doing tonight. You know, and that's the the story where the two guys are are walking. They just left Jerusalem. They're walking towards Emmaus, and they're kind of bummed out because here they thought, you know, that Jesus was the warrior king. He was going to come and wipe out all the enemies of Israel, and what happens? He gets crucified, and So they're just sad, and and they don't know what to think. And Jesus suddenly appears to them on the road, and he starts talking to them. And, you know, he says, oh, he says, well, what are you guys talking about? And and they said, oh, haven't you heard? You know, all the things that's going on in Jerusalem, and, you know, this great prophet is now killed, and blah, blah, blah. And they went on and on. And the scripture says that while he was with them, Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And I can't help but think, as Don, I think, shared as well, you know, wow, that's a Bible study I wish we could hear today. And we are going to hear a little piece of it in tonight's study as we get a glimpse of just a few of those things that... um, speak of Jesus. And we also need to remember again that Paul in the book of Hebrews is speaking to those Jewish Christians living in Rome who are thinking of going back into Judaism because of their fear of the persecutions of the Christians. And so Paul is trying to exhort them once again to not leave their true hope of salvation. And so he's going to point out to them how much better Jesus is than Judaism, and how he is the fulfillment as the true Messiah of all their hope and longing. And so tonight I have divided our study in two parts. First, we're going to look at the portraits of Jesus in the Old Testament tabernacle. And then secondly, we'll look at the differences in limitations between the Old and the New Covenants. Um... I had arranged for some pictures, oh, there they are, uh, of some things that were in the, in the tabernacle. It's not the exact pictures. They didn't have pictures then. <laughs> but it'll give you an idea of what it may have looked like. Okay, so there, there's different ones that are going to appear. 
So let's look first at the portraits of Jesus in the Old Testament tabernacle or sanctuary. So first of all, I want to point out that the word tabernacle comes from the Hebrew word mishkan, which means residence or dwelling place. And the tabernacle of the Old Testament was the portable, earthly dwelling place of God among the children of Israel. From the time of their exodus from Egypt through the conquering of the land of Canaan. And the word sanctuary means a holy place devoted to God. So sometimes tabernacle and sanctuary are used interchangeably. So let's look at verse 1 of our text. It says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. In Exodus chapters 25 to 30, God gave very explicit instructions as to the building of the, of the tabernacle and as to all of the prescribed rites and regulations and ceremonies in order to accomplish divine service to God. And for those of you who may not know, the tabernacle was a portable tent which was comprised of two rooms. And when it was set up, it was surrounded by a high linen fence which had one large gate through which to enter. And as one entered the gate, you went into this outer courtyard, and there stood the brazen or bronze altar of burnt offering. And it was here where the Jews would bring their sacrifices um, or their offerings to be sacrificed to atone for their sins. For atonement could only be made by the shedding of blood. And behind the brazen altar stood the bronze laver, which was a large water basin uh, where the priests were to wash their hands and their feet any time they were to go into the holy place. Each of these things had a spiritual significance and foreshadowed the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. The white linen fence reminded the Jews of the purity and holiness of God inside the tent. Jesus was holy and sinless. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. The large gate symbolized Jesus as the only way to the Father. In John 14.6, Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In John 10.9, Jesus said to his disciples, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. The brazen altar of burnt offerings symbolized Jesus as well, who through his sacrificial death on the cross was the only spotless and complete sacrifice who satisfied fully the requirements to remove all sin once and for all obtaining for those who believe in him eternal redemption. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. The lamb slain on the bronze altar also foreshadowed the death of the lamb of God on the cross. In Isaiah 53.7, Isaiah prophesying of the coming Messiah said, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, 
yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The bronze laver was filled with water for cleansing the priest's hands and feet. And in the same way, the bronze laver, laver, a water basin, excuse me, foreshadowed our cleansing from sin through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Ephesians 5.26 says that Jesus cleanses the church with water by the word. In John 15.3, Jesus told his disciples, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And Titus 3, 4 to 7 says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, behind the bronze labor stood the tent of meeting, or tabernacle. And it was 45 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 15 feet tall, a sort of a boxed-like shaped tent. And it was covered with three layers. The first was of gorgeous woven tapestries, of blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and linen. And the second was a layer of goat's hair. And the third was a layer of ram skins that were dyed red. And within this tent were two rooms. And the first room was called the holy place, and the second room was called the holiest of all, or the holy of holies. Now in verse 2 and verse 6, Paul will now briefly mention the things which are in the first room of the tent and their general purpose. Verse 2 says, For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And then verse 6 says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. And since Paul was speaking to former Jews, he didn't have to go into much detail about the things found in the first room called the holy place. But the room does speak to us a lot about Jesus. First of all, the holy place was a room 15 feet high, 15 feet wide, and 30 feet long. And as you entered the room, you're entering from the east. And so on the left side of the room or the south side, stood the large lampstand, or large menorah. And it was made of one piece of beaten gold, and it had seven branches, three on each side, and one on the top. And this lampstand, at the end of each branch, was a small bowl, which would hold oil and a wick, because this menorah didn't use candles. And since there was no windows in the tent, the lampstand provided the only light by which the priests would offer their services. Part of the priest's ministry in the holy place was to be sure that the lampstand was lit continually, according to Leviticus 24.2. And then twice a day in the morning and at twilight, 
the priests would go in to trim the wick and to refill the little uh, bowls with the oil. And this lampstand foreshadowed Jesus. John 1.4 says of Jesus, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And Jesus said of himself in John 8.12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now on the opposite side of the room, there stood the table of showbread. And the table was made of acacia wood, and it was overlaid with gold. And upon it were twelve loaves of bread, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And the loaves were placed in two rows, with six uh, loaves in each row. And frankincense was put on each row, so that it would also get on the bread as a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. And each Sabbath, the priests would remove the old loaves, and they'd put fresh loaves uh, on the table. And then the old loaves would be eaten. And only the priests could eat the bread, and they were required to eat it there in the sanctuary. And these loaves in Hebrew were called the bread of presence, because they were to be always present in the holy place as an offering to the Lord. And the bread reminded the Jews of God's presence that sustained them when they were in the wilderness. And it also foreshadowed Jesus. In John 6.35, Jesus told his disciples, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. In John 6.58, Jesus said of himself, This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus is our life giver and he's our sustainer. And through belief in him, we have the promise of eternal life. In John 6, 47, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And the last thing that was in the holy place was the altar of incense, which was, um, it stood just before the veil, uh, which separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And according to Exodus chapter 30, every day the priests would burn incense on it. In the morning, when they came in to tend to the lampstand, they would also burn incense. And at twilight, they would also do it the same. And at these two times is also when they were doing burnt offerings on the brazen altar. Now, the incense was made of various ingredients, which the Lord told Moses to use. And you find that in Exodus 30, verses 34 to 38. And the incense was a sweet fragrance that lifted, drifted into the Holy of Holies. And the altar of incense was not to be used for any other offerings, just to burn the incense. And the incense, like the lamp, was to burn continually. As the priests burned the incense from this altar, they would also offer up prayers to the people. And this came probably because King David in Psalm 141.2 said to God, Let my prayer be set before you as incense. So the sweet aroma of the smoke rising from the burning incense is said to be symbolic 
of intercessory prayers rising to God. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest used coals from this altar to place in a censer. I know in, the, uh, in our study it says that the altar of incense was in the Holy of Holies, but it, it really wasn't. It was in the holy place. But the priest had this censer, which was a gold thing. I don't know if you saw it already. Um, but anyway, and they would put coals in there, and then the smoke would come out, and then the, the high priest would take it into the Holy of Holies and uh, kind of sweep it uh, over and around the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, he would use the censer to spread smoke before the mercy seat. And the altar of incense is also a foreshadowing of Jesus, who, according to Romans 8.34, sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for each one of us. What a cool thought, huh? Jesus is up there praying for each one of us every day, every moment. And I found it interesting to note that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. But in the tabernacle, there were no chairs. You see, in the Bible, sitting is something you did after the work was done in, in, uh, in Judaism. But the priestly tasks were never completed, as their sacrifices could never take away sin, so they had to keep repeating them over and over again. Hebrews 10.11 says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But Jesus sits now because his work of redemption is complete. On the cross, he said, it is finished. You know, his death on the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty of all our sins once for all. Hebrews 10:12 says of Jesus, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So now let's look at verses 3 to 5 and verse 7. And these verses will mention the veil, and they'll also uh, look into the Holy of Holies and the services done there. So verses 3 to 5 says, And behind the second veil was the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And then verse 7 says, But into the second part the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself, and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So the first thing we see mentioned is the veil, which is described as the second veil. And it's the second veil because there was another veil uh, right as you enter the holy place. And and the second veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies, and it was made of fine linen, and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. And there were figures of cherubim embroidered onto it. 
And if you remember, Pastor X in his What About Angels series told us that in heaven, cherubim were around the throne of God to guard it. And so it's appropriate that they should be on this curtain as well, this veil. The only furnishing in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, which was made of acacia wood, and it was overlaid again with gold all around, inside and out. And in the Ark of the Covenant was the golden pot of manna to remind the Israelites of God's provision for them as they wandered in the wilderness. There was Aaron's rod that had budded with almonds, uh, which was to confirm his priesthood due to the rebellion of Korah and others. And then the two stone tablets upon which God had written the Ten Commandments. And it's interesting to note that by the time Solomon built his temple, uh, the only thing in the ark was the two tablets. Uh, according to 1 Kings 8.9 and 2 Chronicles 5.10. Uh, and the scriptures don't say what happened to them. You know, we don't know. The lid of the ark was called the mercy seat. And two cherubim facing each other were depicted on the seat, one at each end. And the cherubim had stretched out wings covering the mercy seat. And they faced downward towards the seat. And Paul calls them cherubim of glory, which is in reference to the Shekinah glory of God appearing over the mercy seat, identifying the presence of God. And the phrase mercy seat comes from the Greek word hilasterion, meaning a place of propitiation. And propitiation means to appease God's wrath and to be reconciled to him. And it was on this mercy seat that the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement to appease the wrath of God and satisfy the needed atonement or amends for wrongdoings. For Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God's justice was satisfied by the blood of the sacrifice covering sins until the final atonement was made by the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. First John 2.2 2 says of Jesus, And he himself is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, only the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, known as Yom Kippur. And the high priest entered the Holy of Holies three times on that day. First, he went in to offer incense taken from the altar of incense and placed in a censer, which he then uh, passed over and around the mercy seat. And then a second time, he went in to sprinkle on the mercy seat the blood of an offering for his sins and the sins of his family. And then he went in a third time to sprinkle on the mercy seat the blood of an offering for the sins of the nation committed in ignorance, meaning those sins committed unintentionally or in thoughtlessness. And there was no need for an offering for a person who sinned intentionally, not willing to obey God through the priest or the judge, because he was put to death, according to Numbers 15.30 and Deuteronomy 17.12. And it, I read that 
when he went in three times, each time he had to wash, he had to bathe, he had to change his clothes, and then he, had, then he went in. And then before he could go in again, he had to wash, bathe himself, change his clothes, and go in. So it was not just something that he went in and out, you know. It, 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 was, a big, um, it was a big deal. And the mercy seat was a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus is both the high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, and he is the final spotless sacrifice. His shed blood on the cross not only covered sin, it took it away completely and obtained for us eternal redemption. Jesus' death and resurrection put away the need for a sacrificial system of any kind. Romans 6.10 says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. And Hebrews 7.26 and 27 says, speaking of Jesus, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And so we see that all that made up the Old Testament tabernacle, the brazen altar of offering, the bronze laver, the lampstand, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant, all foreshadowed Jesus. He would bring an end to the sacrificial system by being the last sacrifice ever needed for eternal redemption. And this brings us to our second point of our study, the differences and limitations between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So let's look at the Old Covenant first. And I want to give you three limitations. First, it had limited access to God. Verse 8 in our text says, The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So while the first tabernacle was in place, man did not have direct access to God. You know, the ordinary person could only go into that outer court. They couldn't go into the holy place. Only through the representative, the priests, could they enter in with the priests entered in with their sacrifice. And the priests, because of their number, probably only went into the holy place once or twice in their lifetime, because there were thousands of them. And the, only the high priests could go into the holy of holies, and this only once a year. So man's access to God with the old tabernacle, was very limited. Next, the old covenant was limited in atonement. Verse 9 says, It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. The Old Testament tabernacle and priestly service were symbolic of deeper truths which would come in the new covenant. 
The gifts and sacrifices only served for external ceremonial purification. They could not make the priest or the individual perfect or clean in their conscience, and therefore could not bring about full spiritual peace with God. They were also unable to transform people from the inside out, and they could not empower a person to live above sin as the new birth in Christ would. So the atonement was limited. And thirdly, the old covenant was limited in time. Verse 10 says, speaking of the gifts and the sacrifices, that they were concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. You know, the old covenant was filled only with the shadows and types of heaven and Jesus. Many of the regulations dealt only with the external issues like matters of food and drink and various washings. And all those regulations were imposed, often making the people legalistic, but not necessarily more spiritual. And the old covenant was put in place temporarily until the time of reformation. And the, the word reformation here comes from the Greek word diathoresis, meaning to make straight in a physical sense with the idea of restoring to its natural condition, like, like setting a fracture to get those bones straight again. In other words, the old covenant was put in place until the new covenant would arrive, which would make things eternally right between God and man. Paul said in Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And Paul also said in Galatians 4.4-5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So the old covenant was only temporary, and it was set for just a set time, until the time of Reformation. On the contrary, we have the new covenant. Now, the new covenant has unlimited access to God. Verse 11 says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And so notice first the words, but Christ. And those two words marked a sharp contrast between the ineffective and unfulfilled old covenant and the effective and fulfilled new one. Jesus, as our high priest, officiates in a superior tabernacle in heaven, which the Lord erected, according to Hebrews 8.2. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil in Herod's temple, you remember, was torn in two from top to bottom. And that veil was about 60 feet high. And the tearing of that veil signified that access into the Holy of Holies was no longer restricted to just the high priest. Anyone could now enter. We have unlimited access to the throne room of God 
And that is why Paul could say in Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And isn't it so wonderful that any time we need the Lord, we can go into his throne room through prayer. And he is there to receive us and to hear us. Secondly, the new covenant has unlimited atonement. Verse 12 says, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So we see that the atoning blood in the new covenant was not from animals, but it was Jesus' own blood, which he willingly shed for us. First Peter 1, 18 and 19 says that we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Paul said in Hebrews 7.25 that Jesus as our high priest does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus' sacrifice was superior because it was perfect, voluntary, motivated by love, and final. And as a result of his sacrifice, he obtained for us eternal redemption, not based on our merits or our good works, but solely on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. If we have to add any other works to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for redemption, then that means that Jesus' sacrifice was insufficient, and that would just be blasphemous. Eternal redemption refers to the fact that Jesus shed blood on the cross, ransomed us, or paid the price, um, ransomed us from slavery to sin and its consequences. And the redemption is described as eternal because it is complete and therefore not needing to be repeated. He died once for all, and nothing more is needed. And as a result of eternal redemption, we have eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, right standing before God, adoption into God's family, peace with God, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And Colossians 1 Verses 13 to 14 says, speaking of God the Father, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And third and last, the new covenant has unlimited cleansing for man's sins. Verses 13 and 14 says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now the blood of bulls and goats were were used in the sin offerings on the day of atonement, but as we said, provided only a 
covering for sins and therefore had to be repeated. The ashes of the red heifer, which had to be sacrificed outside of the camp, according to Numbers chapter 19, were mixed with water and used for sprinkling in purification rites those who became uh, ceremonially unclean by contact with that red heifer or with the ashes or by contact with dead bodies. But the sin offerings and the purification rites only dealt with the external, with the flesh. They could not fully cleanse the conscience and the heart of man. But Jesus shed blood on the cross, however, was a better and perfect sacrifice, which was able to cleanse the total person inside and out from sin. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross not only takes away our sins completely, but cleanses our consciences as well and gives us a new heart with a willingness to serve him. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And Romans 3.23-25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth to be a propitiation by his blood through faith. You know, our guilty conscience is not cleared by doing good works, nor by making sacrifices, but rather it is cleared by believing in God's free gift of salvation obtained by Jesus' shed blood on the cross. When we accept Jesus into our hearts as our Lord and Savior, he imputes to us his righteousness, which allows us to stand before the Father in right standing. And as we follow Jesus day by day and abide in his word, we are transformed more and more into his likeness, and we seek more and more to glorify God through our good works. See, we don't do good works to obtain salvation, but rather we do good works out of grateful hearts for the free gift of salvation which Jesus provided. We do good works not to get a pat on the back or some kind of recognition, but rather we do good works in imitation of our Savior and to glorify God. All the good things we do should be done out of thankfulness and gratefulness because God has saved us and called us his own. And so we've seen tonight how much better the new sanctuary in Jesus is than the original sanctuary of the Old Testament. The original sanctuary was just a shadow of the new, and all within it pointed to Jesus. But unlike the old one, Jesus, as the new sanctuary by his shed blood on the cross, provides for us unlimited access to God, unlimited atonement, and unlimited cleansing for man's sin.